Paperman meets up to... Coming up next on the Media Project, a half-hour conversation about the media issues of the week with Alan Chartok, Rosemary Aramayo, Ira Fussfeld, and me, Rex Smith. We'll be talking about reporters in danger. What can be done? We'll be talking about ESPN's decision not to send reporters to the Olympics and what happens when politicians really say what they think when they talk about reporters. Those topics and a lot more coming up on the Media Project next. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis each week on what's going on on the news media, and we hope that you will join us and enjoy it. I'm Rex Smith here with Dr. Alan Shartok with Ira Fussfeld and Rosemary Armeo. Dr. Shartok, we might start with you. You doing okay today, we hope? Uh, yeah. All right, that's enough. <laughs> Rosemary, you're back. You were down in Florida. You uh, Did you have any journalistic observations from down there that are different from what you might have up here? It's completely different. There are no masks down there. At one point, we were in an aquarium. It was a kind of cold and rainy day, and we were one of the few people wearing masks. Old people, people on crutches, young people, disabled people, all the sorts that I would think most likely, most endangered, and most should be in mass were not. It was DeSantis country. You were a reporter and editor in Florida for many years. Do the news media down there take note of this? Is there a sensibility in the coverage that Florida is an outlier? Well, yes. I mean, I think they do the same sort of coverage we do here. Yeah, it's it's difficult because you have to cover, of course, the politicians and give them respect. They are elected officials, and yet what they're doing is against the norms recognized throughout the rest of the country. And the numbers of deaths and illness because of the disease are really skyrocketing in Florida. That's been a difficult story to cover and to get at. Do you remember the young woman who was fired by DeSantis because she was giving out accurate numbers, keeping them for the state? He actually tried to have her arrested. She's just dropped out of sight. And do we even know if the numbers that we get from Florida are accurate anymore? We don't. 
I don't. Mm. Alan, what do you think about something Rosemary just said? Public officials, we need to give them the respect that their offices deserve. There is something to that, isn't there? I mean, the problem is we kind of give deference to people because they've been elected, even when they are bozos. First of all, I'm fascinated by the idea that Rosemary has laid out the scene in Florida. It's interesting to me that every state, every culture, political culture, is probably just a little bit different. And the news media has different norms in each case. So if you think about it for a while, New York has the New York Times, for example, an extraordinary paper. We have the Times Union of Albany, New York, which regularly, as a local paper, but in a capital, breaks stories one after another, and important stories. You know that, Rex, because you were at the helm when much of this story breaking was happening. So in each place, there's a governor. The governor is of a party. The newspaper may be on board for that party, or it may be, you know, our job is to bring down the the Cretans. So there is always a different approach in every state, and I think that's something that is fascinating to me as a political scientist. And Ira, since you sat in the publisher's chair for many years, you know there is something to Alan's point about a local sensibility that attaches when you're reporting about what's going on locally. You can't be alienated entirely from your readers, listeners, viewers, and still survive. Isn't that right? Well, that's right. But I'm interested in what Rosemary was saying, and I'm sure since she was on vacation, she didn't survey every newspaper in the state. But I'm wondering to what extent, if any, the editorial pages of the Florida newspapers are critical correctly so, of DeSantis because of the policies that he is either ignoring or is forming on his own that are putting people at risk. Now, it's possible that the editorial pages do agree with him, but I hope that he is at least getting pressure from within. Saner, more objective voices are trying to get through to the citizens of the state of Florida that their governor is killing them, literally and figuratively. Well, I'm glad you gave me the out because, no, I did not read a lot of newspapers while I was down there. But I did not read a bit of evidence that DeSantis is feeling constrained or talked back to. In fact, he's been emboldened to go on to ever more weird and extreme stuff involving now white supremacy. So, no, I would say not. He's he's going after the federal government for pulling approval of drugs that he's built clinics around, Regeneron and and other um, treatments. He's in favor of treatments, but against vaccines for the disease. And he is not back down from any of that. So if the newspapers are standing up to him, it's having the usual effect of newspaper editorials. I wonder what the geographic differences in the states actually mean in terms of newspaper coverage. So, for example, you know, I spent a good deal of time in Florida working for the Eagleton Institute in the old days. And I was in Tallahassee, and Tallahassee often appeared to me to be like southern Alabama, whereas Miami is very, very different. You, uh, Rosemary, worked on these newspapers, and you were in a firsthand place to see uh, what the geographic differences meant, because back in the day, now Tallahassee has changed, but back in the day, I have to say, it wouldn't surprise me to see people walking around in white suits. So the politics question is, does the politics bleed into the way in which newspapers are covering things? 
you guys know this as well as I do, that the newspapers don't draw from the same population as just the state. Uh, journalism schools all over the country, and that was always my experience there, both at, where I worked in Sarasota and from what I knew about the papers in St. Pete and in Tampa. Those were very well-respected regional newspapers, and they drew from a national group of young people looking for jobs. So the papers were, during my time there, and I suspect now still, much more liberal than the state as a whole. Every year we say, oh, Florida could go blue, but it doesn't. It has lots of conservative influences from the natives, the people who have always been there, from Cubans who tend to be more conservative, from old people who have a large demographic in Florida. It's a very interesting state, but it isn't monolithic. You can't just say, oh, they're old, and so therefore they think this way, or they voted for DeSantis, and so they think this way. It's, it's much more mixed than that. I was the young lady who ran the newspaper and the description that people gave of me. I always enjoyed that. It was well into my 50s and 60s then. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some quarters here, you're still a youngster, huh? With all due respect, Alan. <laughs> well, you know, there there was the old joke by the comedian Robert Klein, and it's not so funny anymore, but he, he used to say, I sent my parents to retire to Florida when they were 60 years old, and 30 years later, they were dead. Boy, is what a dangerous state that is. But I'm not sure 90 is what a lot of them are making these days under the new policies. Yeah, you know, you can make a very good you know, point, Ira. I just wrote a column in which I suggested that I would never retire, quote, to Florida because my parents retired to Florida and they both died there. So therefore, yeah, they both died there. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous place. You know, it is true. Texas is the same as Florida. That is, it is a more diverse state than we, apart from it, tend to realize. There are two points to this. First, there are significant liberal cities, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, of course, and even increasingly Dallas and Fort Worth. In Texas. That is why Texas is increasingly purple rather than red. And second, the editorial pages in those papers are significantly more liberal, which is why they elect liberals to positions of local influence. But politicians have come to realize that it doesn't matter, that editorial pages you can just work around because that's no longer very influential. Not that editorial pages ever were terribly influential, you know, but at least politicians used to court the editorial boards the way they used to or court news organizations. You look at some local politicians in New York. Look at Elise Stefanik. She doesn't even speak to the major media in her district. She doesn't speak to Northeast Public Radio, WAMC. Right. She doesn't speak to the Post Star. And she doesn't seem to pay any price for avoiding journalists. What's with that? I disagree with part of your premise that the editorial endorsements are not important. Mm -hmm. I think even today, where they have far less influence because there is far less readership, I think people will, if they read their local newspaper or whatever newspaper they're reading, they come to a conclusion as to what the newspaper stands for over a period of time. And so when there's an election, if the newspaper endorses candidate A over candidate B, well, that may reinforce people's view that they should vote for candidate A, or they might just think the opposite. If my paper is endorsing this guy, well, we're going with the other guy because I don't agree with anything they say. But I, I do think that they still have an impact. It's diminished, though, because the readership is lower. Well, there's another point here, and that is, in many cases, nobody has the slightest idea about the people who are running for office. So when they read in a paper, particularly a great paper like the New York Times, that we're endorsing this person or that person, they say, okay, well, then that's good enough for me because I don't even know these people. Right. 
Yeah, that had a big effect in the New York Times endorsements in the last presidential election. I think that much of the legacy media has become irrelevant to people in making political decisions. They may look at it and even speak about it, but I don't think it has much influence. And the evidence of this is not just Elise Stefanik, who has done just freaking fine not talking to WAMC or the Times Union, but to our president who doesn't hold sit-down long interviews. Barack Obama did not talk to much of the media in the way that, for example, Clinton did or Kennedy did. Those days are over. You reach people now directly through speeches, if you're going to go low-tech, or through social media. Yes, that's more typical. It certainly is true. Biden, by the way, finally did a big press conference and had to walk back some of the things he said. Also was caught on a hot mic swearing at a Fox News reporter. (laughs) So maybe there's a good reason why they don't do uh, press conferences. They say things they don't really intend to. Are you sure swearing at him didn't help him? (laughs) Maybe it did. You know, there's a point to this also. Biden was referring to Peter Ducey, a Fox News reporter, who asked what he thought was a dumb question. And the president said, what a stupid SOB. And then the point is, he called later and supposedly what he said was, it's nothing personal, pal, Biden said to Ducey. That is interesting. It's something, Alan, you've talked about before, the sort of personal relationship. There's a certain unhealthiness, isn't there, to the nature of friendliness almost when people are thrown together in state capitals and national capitals. There's a kind of identification between reporters and their sources that often skews the news coverage, don't you think? Yes. And we've discussed it many times, Ben Bradley and President Kennedy. (laughs) You know, these guys were very good friends. And I have an absolute sense that what happened in the news media, assignments and editorials had a lot to do with that friendship. So it can be positive, but it also can bring some negative things with it. Well, there are two postscripts to this Peter Ducey Biden affair. Uh, one entirely predictable, which is that the Republicans were outraged at Biden for being so gauche to say that, when, of course, they've just been through four years of Trump saying that and a lot worse, or going farther back when you remember on a hot mic, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were, were heard cursing at a reporter. But the other postscript was a video that was unleashed on YouTube showing John McCain speaking to that very same Peter Ducey, who asked him a question, and McCain's response was, was, how could you ask such a stupid question? So there's no party that dominates its disdain and distrust and dislike for the press, but it depends on whose ox is gored on a particular case. I'm sorry. I think Peter Ducey totally deserved that curse, and it was not at him. It was about him. There was a distinction there, and it was a stupid question, and there were a lot of aggressive and stupid questions at that press conference, which is one more inducement for public officials to stay away. He was asked if he was senile. Come on, give me a break. There was a certain performance among the reporters there to stand up for and talk tough to the president. I find it extremely distasteful. I'm not, as you know, a proponent and have long disagreed with the whole idea of presidential press conferences. I'm not sure what they accomplish except you try to catch them up in a mistake or in an insult. And I also found it refreshing that he called up Peter Ducey later and apologized, which is what grown-up people do. You get caught doing something you shouldn't have, even if it feels really good that you did it, and you have to apologize. And he did, once more proving he's a grown-up. Interesting. There is a value, though, to press conferences in the sense of even internally in the government. When the president articulates a point of view in a press conference, it helps to actually settle disputes 
internally in something as massive as the federal government. When you see what the president is actually saying, if there's a conflict between the Department of Transportation and the Department of Housing, you get the president's word at the press conference, which settles these things. So that is something that was pointed out by numerous administrations when George W. Bush stopped doing press conferences, that he was leaving his own government unable to determine what the right course was. Press conferences also force a president to do some homework and come up with answers to things. So there's a value to that internally, apart from what we as media, I, I really used to be annoyed at press conferences in Mario Cuomo's administration when I was covering that. The reporters who, as you're saying, Rosemary, would make their points, would stand up to get their moment in front of the TV camera and to make the point that, by God, I'm a tough reporter. One in particular. Ask the question. One in particular. That is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of stupid SOB. Uh, in any case, <laughs> let's like talk it. about a different topic. Reporters in danger. There are a couple incidents of this recently that we ought to talk about. There was a video that some people may have seen of a West Virginia local television reporter who, while doing a live shoot outdoors at night, was struck by a car and quickly says, I'm okay, I'm okay, she says to the anchor and gets back up and she points out, well, I'm just a one-woman band here. And this has prompted some hand-wringing by journalists saying this isn't safe for reporters to be going out on their own, especially a young, a small-statured woman reporter with a TV camera standing in front of the camera that she set up herself. It is a different world than it used to be when there would be a whole crew with a TV reporter. But it does raise the whole question of the danger in reporting, which we used to think went with the job. Rosemary, I'm kind of interested, especially in your point of view on this, because you've been in foreign places where there is genuine physical danger to the reporters for doing their job. Isn't being in a dangerous position part of a journalist's role? Yep, and you accept it as you're going to go into journalism. I mean, I watched that video and I applauded her. Immediately, our discussion here turned into her gender and her size. Women are smaller than men and not as strong. Does that mean they shouldn't be reporters because they can't be protected? Wow, I hope that's not the truth. I can remember years ago, I wanted to cover a Bruce Springsteen concert. He was a big deal in Cleveland, and I was not just five foot one, but I was usually pregnant and the editor wasn't going to send me because I could get trampled in a crowd. And my response was, oh, so you're not sending me because I'm pregnant? Well, fine, I'll see you in court then. And of course, he let me go and it just was fine. Women can do anything men can. They have to take extra steps. But men do too. Men tend to be worse in these situations because they're more reckless and they don't ask for help and they don't take precautions because it's in our culture that you have to be macho and accept it. So the truth is that all journalists need to be careful in this day and age, not just from things like speeding cars. I mean, she just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I, the woman driver who hit her was appalled if you look at the video. But when you go into uh, foreign places, when you go out at night, when you're interviewing people who are not so savory and you're doing it in places that are not so savory, of course you have to take precautions. But that does not mean that you should be forbidden from doing it or that you just stop doing the journalism. I just want to point out that you said the woman driver who hit her, you didn't mean that as a uh, pejorative. No, it was a woman. She jumped out of the car right away and said, oh, my God, are you okay? And the reporter in the in the video goes to Lynch and says, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. I'm all right. Just go ahead. They didn't even exchange information. No, it was not pejorative at all. I don't want to make this woman reporter 
uh, a victim. I don't want to blame the victim, but it seems to me that on that particular shoot, perhaps if she had people with her on that shoot, they might have told her, don't set up here. It's too close to the road. So I, I don't know if she made a flat-out mistake that made her more vulnerable. I'm more concerned when I see reporters, men or women, who are out on their own, standing in the middle of the street of a neighborhood at midnight, reporting on a crime that happened 12 hours earlier, but they still send them out to that site to get some video, and they're literally alone in a street in a dark neighborhood. That strikes me as a lot more of concern for them being only the reporter out there. They have no protection, no bodyguards, etc. But the woman who was hit by a car, uh, it was an accident, and she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I wonder whether she could have made herself safer strictly about where she stood to set up her shot. Well, reporters who wade into the middle of a flooded roadway, when officials tell you don't do that with your car, but they do that so that they look brave in front of the camera, that kind of thing, it, it, it is a reporter's job to keep themselves protected while getting the story as much as they can. I sort of remember in our union contracts, there was a hazardous job clause. I don't recall how it was read, but it basically said, we're not going to send you someplace where it's dangerous unless you don't mind going there. Rosemary, I have a question for you. You're, you're a professor, you're teaching young students, and I'm sure that this issue of danger and whether they're willing to put themselves into danger, maybe it's naivete, comes up. What can you report to us? Well, it does come up, both female and male students comes up, because it is increasingly dangerous to be a journalist and cover foreign places and our own places lately in a partisan environment. Protests represent a huge danger to reporters anymore because you're wading in among people who don't like you being there, who don't like you writing about them. Sexual harassment is a huge issue that I get asked about tons by female reporters. That seems to be a bigger danger to me than physical harm, where we're trained really from early age to watch out for yourself. People trying to take advantage of you, you know, offer you information in exchange for favors, uh, making fun of you. That happens a lot to young journalists. And you teach them to fight back. You protect yourself, but you still get the story. Well, if you can, there is this other issue. ESPN has decided not to send reporters to the Olympics to protect them from the danger of COVID. So a lot of ESPN commentary or all the ESPN commentary on the Olympics is going to be from their studios in Connecticut. However, what that doesn't say is, of course, the camera crews are still there. The producers are going to be over there. That is a danger that people are being put into by their jobs. I would think there would be, if there's a clause in the contract of those TV people at ESPN, similar to what I was talking about, I would think sending someone into a hot COVID zone like China suggests that any coverage is actually a danger for those journalists. Well, the ESPN coverage is going to be secondary. The NBC coverage is the primary coverage. It's the live coverage of the Olympics. And the day before ESPN made its announcement, NBC made the same announcement, or the first was to make an announcement. They're not sending any of their reporters, their quote-unquote play-by-play people, and it's going to hurt their coverage. Even though they're going to be able to do it over video from Connecticut, it won't be the same. But you're right, Rex, they're still sending technicians over there, and they're going to be living in a bubble, and they'll just do the best they can. 
I have great suspicions about this whole thing. There's been debate for years in newsrooms about sending massive teams to cover sports events. Is it really needed or not? Do you really need all those reporters and technicians to cover the Olympics? Can it just be done by watching on television? What do you get? Is the price justified? So I'm wondering if they're trying to save money and calling it a health measure. If the athletes can go and it's safe for them to take measures, why not for journalists? Well, NBC spends billions on the Olympics, and they send it because they're going to make it back in commercials. And they're already talking about having to do givebacks on commercial time that has already been ordered, because not only is it because they're not going to be there live, but because a lot of people are turned off by the notion of the Olympics being in China, and all that applies. But, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times, in their heyday of covering Olympics, would literally send dozens of reporters and photographers, and they needed to be there because they wanted access to the athletes. They didn't have to report on the results because anybody could do that. You get that from the AP, but you needed to be there if you wanted to interview these people and get feature stories. And you're going to see far less of that, I believe, in the big newspapers this year. I even used to send a reporter and columnist to the Olympics from the Times Union. So it used to be such a big deal. And of course, there used to be enough money lying around that you could do that sort of thing. But the problem is nowadays, of course, since the Olympics are so much more politically charged than they used to be, NBC, with their great contract, is going to have to be turning a blind eye to the genocide of the Uyghurs, to the way that the Chinese government, which is taking full advantage of the Olympics, is notwithstanding that they're inflicting this terrible penalty upon humans. And that is something that NBC ought to answer for, for making all of this money by basically shutting up about the genocide in China, lest China cut off their access to the Olympics and NBC lose all that money. That's what the Olympics is really all about, is the money. And the athletic competition is just the means to many, many people making billions of dollars off the Olympics. That's a really good story, by the way. Check out the current HBO Real Sports. It was just released this week, and they do a tremendous segment on this, uh, the human rights violations in China, etc., and how IOC, the International Olympic Committee, it's all about money, as Rex said. Finally, a letter from a listener, Michael, in Portland, Maine, who is a huge fan of the show. He wants to take notice of the fact that there is a headline that said, Neil Young reportedly wants his music removed from Spotify when that story Mm. first broke. And he's concerned that a single story is reduced to just a headline and says, what does this mean? This struck me as somewhat controversial, Michael writes, given that the folks at Google took it upon themselves to condense the entire news story down to one sentence. Now, maybe it's just the link that was broken, and so it only got a headline there. But condensation of complex stories to shorthand is a real problem in journalism, isn't it? Alan, you probably see a lot of that, right? I don't know whether I do or not, but it's a fascinating story. I'm glad that Michael, I think it is, raised the issue with us. Because how many people in this world who are making great amounts of money, and certainly Neil Young is one of them, and Spotify is his number one place of putting out his songs and the rest, have the guts and the courage to say, hey, what's going on here isn't right. I'm out of it. Now, what I'm interested in is whether he stays out of it or not. 
Well, there's actually balance to that story. Vox wrote a story about how Neil Young, and believe me, I love him. I think Harvest Moon is the best of all possible love songs. However, he put out albums previously in which he played down biotechnology, specifically GMO technology. He uh, came out strongly against it. And that really is the basis of the same distrust of biotechnology that we see in vaccines. So he is not completely without cause here. The whole idea of celebrities taking up issues or not is a really interesting one. He did take a principal position here, but he has been a little lax in the past. And that's what the journalists do is they covered the whole story first that it happened, then looking at his own background and the context. And you cannot boil that down into one sentence. But the truth is boiling down the complexity into simple and short pieces is exactly what journalism is. I always tell that as an editor to reporters who are complaining they can't tell the story in the space I've given them. It's like either, okay, you do it or I will. I'll cut out this stuff. You can do it. And then it's up to readers it's not all up to the journalists. It's up to readers to say, hey, I want more and go looking for it. All I know is he lost a lot of money as a result of this, and it is principal, and I want to give him a shout-out for that. All right. That's all we have time for this week. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Arameo, Ira Fessfeld, and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, for putting up with all of this. And to you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of The Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Freedom of the press.